Hello everyone, welcome to the Luke Turner Podcast. I, of course, am Luke Turner, because that makes sense. Welcome, this is a conversation with Michael Flood, a friend of mine, who is a designer, an engineer, and an artist, uh, with a strong interest in sustainable and future-proof engineering. So we talked about a lot of cool stuff sort of his design and work philosophy and how he gets things done, lab-grown meat and how that may shape fast food in the future, psychedelic therapy, so the use of psychedelics uh, in psychotherapy, and a bunch of other stuff. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and Michael can be found on Instagram at createwonder, C-R-E-A-T-E, W-O-N-D-R. Enjoy this conversation with Michael Flood. Michael, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Uh, I ran into you recently at Dragon Dreaming Festival and um, it'd been a while since I'd seen you. And sounds like you're up to exciting stuff as you usually are. Um, but yeah, I felt particularly inspired talking to you and um, thought I'd delve a bit deeper into some of what you've got going on. Um, so maybe we could sort of start with a bit of an overview of maybe your professional background and sort of what you do day to day. Yeah. So I guess you could say I'm a creative technologist. I run my own design studio in Melbourne where we do a lot of uh digital manufacturing and um, kind of bespoke uh, artisanal design projects with, uh, with, with all sorts of characters that, that come in and um, mostly kind of focused around um, uh, festival culture and, and events and kind of like underground uh, alternative culture stuff, mm-hmm. which, is, which is pretty fun. Um, my background is uh, I completed my, um, I did a double degree in engineering and industrial design at RMIT, which I finished five or six years ago now. And after that, I worked in research, in design research uh, at RMIT, looking at sustainable materials and large kind of, uh, large societal based um, sustainability issues. And then from there, I was doing a bit of freelance um, hardware prototyping and some software development and a few different things like that. And um, and then kind of since the, and then I guess gradually shifted more onto onto developing my creative uh, side, my creative endeavors, um, and yeah, going deep into into design and manufacturing of. Uh, LED kind of artworks and um, CNC jewelry and, and, and laser cutting and, uh, you know, just, um, just really opening up the possibilities uh, of, of small scale local manufacturing and, um, and how I could fit that into my passion for, for music and festival culture and, and stuff like that. Yeah, you seem to have certainly made it work for yourself. And, um, you know, I was just having a a scroll through your Instagram before and 
so so much color so, so much light and um so many intricate designs it's really amazing to see um yeah and those are the ones on pirates you know like there's a, yeah, bit, right. uh, like a lot of um you know unfinished and on un, uh, un, less detailed designs just waiting for uh time and space to to bring them into the world yeah that's actually it kind of leads me into something i wanted to ask about which is sort of productivity and managing several interests and several projects at any given time because you seem to be you know able to smash things out and even if there's a bunch of stuff that you haven't posted on instagram there is still a lot of content that you are seeming to finish as well um so maybe you could talk a little bit about your kind of workflow and how you sort of conceptualize getting things done yeah i guess uh in ideal conditions, we have, you know, the time and uh, the budget and the, you know, the, uh, the trust of, of, the, of the people I collaborate and work with to, um, to really bring, bring forth the best, the best solution for them and the best, um, the best, uh, the best, best I can do. But obviously, you know, there's always compromises along the way and, um, usually you know it's like um what's the there's like a design um uh saying in design it's like do you want it fast or do you want it good or do you want it um oh god i forget but but yeah there's i guess it's a constant balance of these different factors and um as far as my process goes i see it as this kind of it, it it's this constant it's like this um expansion um where you where you you know at, where you start the project you expand and you you know you do some research and you build up some concepts and then you kind of contract where you you know you you then show the concepts and you and you and you talk with the client and then you kind of like hone in on on the um on the on the outcome and then um you kind of expand again you know like to do the detailing and to to really flesh it out and then you contract again um into testing and 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 the final stages of the of the process so um so yeah i guess i try to i try to you know in, implement my process in in it, in all of my projects um but again we're always limited by these by these factors and um and yeah like i mean when i'm doing uh, a build you know sometimes the deadlines will be really tight so i'll have these weeks of, of quite furious activity and then and then i'll have a little break and before the next thing sure yeah i, I really like that idea of expansion and contraction um i think a lot of the time when we build projects especially if they're personal projects um the expansion tends to be very enticing at the start of the project and perhaps too enticing um and then things get out of hand and it's a little hard to kind of rein it back in um and i suppose working with other people quite closely particularly if you trust them um would probably help with that because you know it has it's a person to bounce off and to kind of edit those ideas and kind of this acceptance that you're not going to be able to put in every idea that you have into a project uh, and having to sort of make those compromises. 
Yeah, I feel, I feel like there's a big distinction between art and design as well. Like, I feel like art in and of itself can be really open-ended, whereas when you're doing a design project, there's there's this there's really a goal in mind that you're and um and obviously I like dipping my toes in both uh both both pies, but um you dip your toes in pies, but I did both <laughs> and um and and I find that that yeah like I mean good art is knowing when to stop. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's tricky, uh, you know, particularly with art and, and music and that kind of thing, because in, in some ways you need to be your own worst critic in order to improve, uh, but then that can also kind of stop you from ever finishing. So it, it's, a, it's almost a psychological game that you have to play with um, kind of finding that balance, I suppose. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of my um, kind of key adaptations over the years was is really, you know, using that harsh inner critic to push myself further and further and to just keep keep going and going and and fleshing out different different ideas and and going down these different rabbit holes of of um of interest and and it's quite funny you know to then reflect back on that and to see you know um to to the outside world how how impressive perhaps my 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 pieces are or, or or what i'm doing but inside you know like i'm i'm still i can i'm still chasing this 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 dragon of uh of perfection mm-hmm. um which yeah is really powerful motivator and, and 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 but it also i've had to learn to to really um relish in my successes um rather than yeah and, and to, to learn to switch this this uh this part off at the right time so i can um so yeah so i can enjoy it as well <laughs> yeah like another type of expansion and contraction in a way kind of have to sort of dance between those two realms um not easy but uh it sounds like you've definitely made some progress in that arena so good job <laughs> um Thanks, yeah. it's not something else actually i wanted to bring up uh that we talked about recently was uh, psychedelic therapy um mm. now, is, is right? topic. yeah absolutely um and I, I wasn't sort of aware that this was actually happening in australia um but you were telling me that there was uh quite a few studies going on um maybe you could tell us a little bit about psychedelic therapy and sort of where it's at at the moment yeah so i guess a good place to start would be that the the current mental health paradigm is is failing the um the the you know the the pharmaceutical based solutions um to the uh, mental health crisis have been um overwhelmingly if you look at the data um unsuccessful and um psychedelics appear to hold great promise uh now that you know the they've they've finally been been let out of the cage that they were so um that they were condemned to after the the uh the the the, the chaos of the of the 60s and you know the the initial opening of pandora's box you could say and so uh 
psychedelic therapy has been ongoing um, since that time, uh, a lot of it underground, but it has started to emerge and arise uh, to the surface again as, as people are starting to realize, you know, how, um, how much of a, a challenge this, you know, society faces with, um, with substance abuse and, and mental health and, and general, you know, this, this internal dissatisfaction and, and disconnection and, um, you know, the, the various uh, sicknesses and the, the plague our, our society and, and the common kind of mental ailments that people are suffering from today. And so, and so, yeah, um, so in Australia recently, there's been some really great, um, studies that are being done, you know, that are just kind of, um, skirting the, um, the territory to try and try and open it up and, and normalize this kind of, this kind of research and these kinds of mental health treatments. Um, so for instance, at St. Vincent's hospital in, in Melbourne, they were doing, uh, an end of life anxiety study, uh, giving, uh, psilocybin mushrooms to people with terminal illnesses, um, or, or old age. And they had incredible success, um, with the outcomes, um, for, it seems I'm not I'm not sure if they've uh, published the, the data yet, but um, uh, you can you can definitely find out more about it. Um, uh, I think the lead researcher is Dr. Margaret Ross, uh, and and she's she's wonderful. You should uh, listen to, to to what she has to say because she's uh, very uh, very passionate about this kind of stuff. And um, and what else? Um, yeah, there's 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 a few other studies and a few other studies in in, in New South Wales and in, um, in Western Australia as well, um, and uh, I, again, this isn't my uh, my field of expertise, but um, but yeah, it's it's amazing, you know, what these uh, forays into this um, down this line of thinking have have uh, uncovered, and um, globally, I guess you could say that you know psychedelic therapy is one of the is is kind of like the the, one of the hottest uh, topics out there in in mental health um, and the you know as the legal barriers are dissolving um, especially in the west there are you know new new products um, becoming available new uh, experiences retreat centers um, uh, and um, there are a lot of people out there that are really looking for answers and looking for help and and this is kind of um, you know I guess there's this the thing about pushing psychedelics into the underground for so long is that, um, you know, there's been, there's been no, uh, there's been no, the, you know, control over the practitioners, you know, like bad actors have no, um, no, no responsibility and there's no, there's no way to, to control the, the content and the quality of these experiences. And through the, um, you know, through developing these frameworks, like in, in Australia, they're developing a psychedelic assisted therapy training program. So if you're a psychologist or a social worker, you'll be able to get accredited and you'll be able to, um, you know, take people on journeys and, and sit with them mm. through it and help guide them through their own healing process. Um, and I think it's just, you know, it's just such a, a beautiful new avenue to, um, yeah, reducing suffering in our society. Yeah, it's it's very exciting to see. Um, you know, I think a lot of these changes happening in our lifetime is is very cool to me. It's interesting you mentioned like the legal sort of barriers 
sort of shifting over time. I mean, I'm not sure if you would know the exact answer to this, but do you, what do you think are the sort of metrics or the the data points that would convince the lawmakers or whoever's in charge to actually make those legal changes? Like, do they have to see a certain amount of efficacy from certain drugs at a certain point? Or do you have any insight into that? Yeah, I think what what's really interesting is if you look at uh, more, more um, which is cannabis uh, and medical cannabis, which is a bit further down the line than psychedelic treatments, uh, and you can you can see that uh, the the way that the tide shifted, the way that the lobbyists or the campaigners and the um, scientists and stuff they shifted was really down this angle of you know compassion, and so you know giving. Um, THC to kids with epilepsy, um, veterans with PTSD, um, you know, uh, various other, um, you know, special use cases. And then I think, you know, once they develop a, a solid body of evidence, which, which takes a bit of time, um, then, you know, the, the, the doors start to start to open and the barriers start to dissolve because again, um, once the yeah once the results are in once the body of work the the the, the data the meta analysis that like is uh, is is done and proven and it's shown that it's safe then then things will generally have, have started to shift yeah yeah that makes sense i suppose the <clears throat> pardon me the, the terminally ill patients and that sort of thing uh, are the psychedelic version of uh, the epilepsy patients in cannabis perhaps sort of early cases that we're seeing now um, but it does seem in the last few years we're kind of progressing a little bit beyond that stage now um, which is is very cool to see because um, yeah I mean the pharmaceutical industry obviously there's a lot of issues there um, and antidepressants and that sort of thing um, you yeah. know for some people they work quite well but you know for most there's at least some side effects um, and so you know, I think an overall reduction of suffering, you know, if, if all it takes is a, a reconceptualization of these drugs as not inherently dangerous, um, it sounds quite promising. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's also like any other technology, a double-edged sword, because, you know, once you legalize psychedelics and commercialize them, you know, um, like, for instance, you know, L psilocybin or even lsd psilocybin is an eight hour experience you know and if you're commercializing it you want to get people in and out as quick as possible get the next guy the next person in mm -hmm. so it's like there's the quality um you know you have to you have to do it in such a way and design it in such a way to account for you know market forces and the race to the bottom and and you know all of these factors so it's like it's a it's a really complex and it, situation and it's gonna yeah it's, australia is not known to be uh, a leader in um in these kinds of things so i think yeah we'll be we'll be we'll get there eventually but i'm not i'm not uh mm. not, not gonna hold my breath sure yeah i suppose that's an interesting consideration uh, because most psychedelics are an experience or of course they are an experience but you know they're quite a long experience generally um whereas you know giving someone a pill that they take every day um while that may accumulate side effects over time it's not quite a not quite the same in terms of having to sit with them for eight hours or you know that sort of thing so 
that's an interesting consideration. It's it, there's more, I guess, short term uh, babysitting that has to be done, um, for lack of a better term. Um, yeah. Well, it's yeah. yeah it's someone fun. has to get paid to do that, and um, hmm. and then obviously, like you know, the psychedelic experience isn't just about the experience itself. It's also the integration and how do you integrate the lessons back into your life. And um, you know, there's lots of interesting opportunities there for. Um, you know, um, similar to Vipassana where you have, you know, groups, uh, you can do group integration and, you know, online sessions where you can check in with your therapist and um, have, you know, several integration sessions after the experience itself. And, and it's, it, it, it's funnily enough, it's, it's kind of like this integration of um, uh, like Eastern or, or like shamanism into this modern context of, of the psychologist and of the, of the mental health practitioner and like, you know, bringing the, the, the healing element and the shamanistic element back, back into it, mm. which is, mm. um, you know, seems to be a fundamental part of a healthy functioning society. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's certainly been around for a long time. Um, and I, I wonder if there'll be much resistance in the West to that kind of concept, uh, just because of ideas that have been established. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, I mean, you've got to be realistic and, and, and think that, you know, there are some, some humans living today that will never be ready for a psychedelic experience in this lifetime. And, and that's okay. You know, um, you know, we're only here for such a short amount of time and, um, and you just you've got to really, got to really uh, think about what it is you want to do and achieve. So, absolutely, and it seems like you're achieving quite a bit, <laughs> which um, I'm very happy to see. Um, uh, thanks. Uh, another thing uh, that we actually discussed um, was lab-grown meat, uh, which is oh yeah, <laughs> I, I've always been fascinated by uh, ever since I first heard about it. Um, and I don't want to butcher the explanation of the concept. So maybe you could give us a brief background on kind of how it works and where we're at with that as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're at, um, maybe like third, third generation, uh, um, art, like artificial meat, right. Could say, I mean, we're, we're kind of at the, the weird stage where, you know, you have the impossible burger and, and beyond meats and, and all of these kind of startup companies, um, that are making things that, that kind of taste good, but, um, they're definitely no, uh, no real replacement, um, in terms of their nutritional content or their necessarily their, uh, their sustainable or their, like, you know, their production, um, compared to animal agriculture, uh, yet, um, but it is definitely a very exciting field because, again, we're, we're coming up against a really uh, a limit to the growth of our civilization where, you know, we've uh, wholesale exported Western culture to all the developing nations. And, you know, uh, societies which were traditionally vegetarian are now increasingly the demand for meat is going up and there's um there's no way that we can feed a whole planet on the western diet that's never gonna happen um 
it's like you know if you look at the numbers so there's this new i think there's this new opportunity market opportunity to supply a western like diet experience um without the uh the tremendous amount of resources uh involved in 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 creating that and if you will um what what you may notice is that fast food companies have uh some of the best distribution networks for food uh for, for you know for getting food in people's mouths um in the, in the world and they are, are you know slowly shifting it seems toward the idea they're slowly kind of like getting getting geared up for this future where um a lot of people want to have happy meals and there's no you know there's there's no trees left in the amazon because we, we cut them all down to um to to make uh, fields for all the all the cows or whatever right and so um and so you'll see mcdonald's is rebranding as as green uh from red their their new color is is now green to, oh, really? to show how much yeah it's to show how much they care about the environment and the future and um and you'll see, you know, uh, Hungry Jacks in Australia is experimenting with uh, lab-grown stuff with CSIRO, and they're making their own, um, you know, lab-grown. Well, they're not lab-grown. Sorry, they're like a bio, like fermented meat uh, substitutes. Um, it's a shame. A, a friend of mine was was good. Was told me to read this paper recently, which really um, was showed a much more realistic outlook for when these kinds of products will be available. And it, it kind of showed that they're, they're still quite a ways off, you know, cellular uh, meat, um, yeah, you know, at McDonald's. But, but I think what I was uh, telling you about was, was my uh, utopian vision for, um, for, for the future of fast food where, you know, you cut out um, you, cause like the, these, these companies like McDonald's and, and Burger King and whatever they're, you know, they're some of the biggest, uh, the biggest um, suppliers and, and creators and, and consumers of um, of beef and, and and chicken and pork in the world, and so, well, you know, they have these huge distribution networks to to get that you know the beef they need to make their patties, and um, if you could just completely eliminate, you know, a vast swath of that network and just uh, have you know vats uh, at every single McDonald's location that were producing the the meat or the mints for the patties um, on site locally from you know uh, what would amount as as you know the, the the raw inputs being practically waste materials um, you could you could yeah you could make a very sustainable case for the uh, you know the the dominance of of McDonald's um, in the market, and um, and I think I think it might actually head that way. When it will, uh, well, that's yet to be seen. Mm. Yeah, I suppose there's some credit to taking advantage of the the trendiness of going green at the moment, um, and it, it is nice to see that these fast food companies are kind of taking this approach. It's just hard for me as a non-looker that doesn't really know much about it to be able to distinguish between what is sort of greenwashing uh, and what is real progress, uh, meaning that like it, it's a bit hard to say if people are just saying that they're green and then they're realistically not. Um, but it does seem like the demand 
this sort of thing is growing. Um, more and more people I know doing the plant-based thing, uh, which is awesome. But um, yeah, it, it is a little bit hard for me to um, sort of tell exactly what the modus operandi of these companies is sometimes. Well, yeah, I've got, I've got another funny story for you, actually. Um, when, I was, when I was working at RMIT in research, uh, in, in sustainability research there, we were working on a project uh, with, on, on food waste. And I think it's, it's something crazy. It's like, um, you know, a third of all the food produced in Australia is, is thrown out or something like that. I was like, I think, I think we calculated it. Sorry, this is uh, going back into the archives in my brain here. Uh, I think we calculated it's like 20, $21 billion is lost uh, as, as food waste every year. So it's a pretty significant problem when you look at it as a whole. Um, and um, so we were doing this one part of the study where we were working, we I was interviewing the head of uh, sustainability for Woolworths shopping centers. And um and what were we talking about? We we're talking about so so basically like uh, the consumer uh, studies uh, have shown that no one wants to see plastic in the fresh fruit aisle of the supermarket. Mm. Absolutely, no one wants their fruit in pl- packaged in in plastic that doesn't break down for thousands of years. Like no no one likes that. No one wants to see it. And um, and the, the line from the supermarkets time and time again is that, you know, the plastic packaging protects the food um, so that it doesn't, so that it doesn't go bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what we found, we're doing um, life cycle analysis. So it's where you, you know, you take the product and you start from the very, you know, from the very start from farm and, and you, you look at it at every stage and all the energy inputs and the material inputs and outputs. And, you know, you do a little analysis and you, and you kind of see these different trigger points and then you look at how to leverage them to make changes in the system. And so it turns out that the plastic packaging is great. Um, up and you know through from the from the farm up to the distribution center so then they pack it on the shelves but there's actually no evidence to suggest that the plastic packaging is helpful from getting it from the shelf into the consumer's home and into their fridge mm. or whatever that that part has just been externalized by the um by the by the supermarkets um for various economic and, and market-based decisions but the the interesting story before i get too sidetracked is um so i, I think you'll you, you'll remember maybe about five years ago they started introducing these like uh like uh, salad packs and um like these kind of like really quick you know pre-packaged you know three capsicums or like uh two cauliflowers and they're just like these pre pre-packaged things and you can like mm. roll into the supermarket and then like get your trolley and just like go bam, 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 bam. And just like sure. everything's in there. You didn't have to put anything in a bag yourself, you know, like super convenient in and out, boom. Um, and so they, they, they created this product. I was asking the, you know, the VP of uh, sustainability, I was like, you know, so, so why is it that you have this product? Because, you know, and they're like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it is, you know, we have the biggest uh, customer base in, in Australia. We have to cater for every single type of Australian, every single type of customer, you know, and, and one of our customers is a, you know, a single mom with three kids and she's late for the, 
choir rehearsal and she has to do the shopping now she's got one of the kids screaming and you know she just wants to get it done get in there and get out right and and she's the target market for these um for these easy to use they had a whole they had a name a specific category for the product but i Mm -hmm. can't this the name uh, escapes me at the moment and um and i was like yeah i mean like that that's great and i'm sure that particular customer is 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 absolutely stoked with that product offering and you know there are definitely circumstances where you know there there these kind of you don't have time to to do all the things but what you've also done is now off made an offering that appeals to the lower nature in your entire customer base that will go well why would i you know package my own tomatoes if i can just buy them in this convenient package you know and it's like you're you're basically you're you're creating a new expectation from the customers that there is this easy pre-packaged everything for them to just they don't have to do any of those extra steps anymore um and 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 again it's like it's this, this race to the bottom where um where in the end um yeah, we all save, you know, 30 seconds in the supermarket, but you end up with these, these huge volumes of soft plastics and, you know, uh, plastic, I mean, like cardboard that is like laminated with plastic that you can't actually recycle and, yep. and all these all these really shitty materials. And I, I mean, I was on the phone to this guy, like I was getting a bit upset, you know, and I was, I was just kind of like having a go at him about it. <laughs> and, um and in the end, their their answer was that you know the customer is king. You know, like a choice and and convenience. That's what we're optimized for. We're not optimized for the environment, for our impacts on society, for the kinds of behaviors that we are incentivizing through our advertising. You know, they're not res- taking responsibility for any of that. And um, and and why should they? There's no there's no policy framework. There's no there's no uh, accountability for for bad actors there's no you know overarching societal goals or, or ethics or standards which uh, these companies should be uh, are required to aspire towards um, and so you know they I don't blame Woolworth specifically I, I think it's a systemic failure which um, which which yeah doesn't doesn't reprimand bad actors and uh, is quite easily manipulated and corrupted well yes quite interesting to him say that directly um i'm sure it comes as no surprise to you when he says something like that but yeah it it is an unfortunate thing that um the kind of the way things are set up now um it is just so much more convenient for people to overuse things because it's just right there in front of them and i think i remember you saying something along the lines of behavioral change is the the last layer of change the hardest layer to actually implement um, on an individual level. And I guess, you know, sort of leads me to think about your thoughts on the future more generally. And, you know, where do you think you see us going in terms of sustainability? Because I know that there is a lot of um, very interesting and exciting projects that are happening um and a lot of that is a result of the capitalism that we kind of find ourselves in as well because people are wanting to make a lot of money off of these technologies um but i suppose do you think that there will be a kind of 
net positive result of, of those things that are happening? Or do you think uh, not so much? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I, I can't possibly know what the future is going to bring, but I have some hope that there are going to be some very smart people that can see the way things are going and start to implement some kinds of, uh, I guess, safety nets as automation increases, as, um, you know, uh, AI gets better than human engineers at solving problems, as, uh, as you know, the, the, the topsoil funds to, um, starts to deteriorate, um, as you know, the climate change gets uh, more and more prominent. And, you know, I guess I get, I get pretty excited about uh, web three. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will hear me say that and, and cringe, <laughs> but I think, you know, every, um, every push towards, you know, mon- like monopolization and totalitarianism has an equal and opposite push um, back. And I think that as, you know, things are, uh, you know, know, it's like, what I think I read this quote today, um, the internet reroutes against, um, or censorship, you know, and it, it, it's kind of like, so even though things, you know, some, some terrible things may happen from that pain and suffering from that, uh, hardship, you know, new solutions will emerge. Mm. And I think that, you know, like one of the biggest issues that I had when I was working in research, you know, we were, they were, we were working for the sustainability Victoria. They commissioned this big, big report on, on how to uh, deal with the glass waste problem in, in, in Victoria. And, um, you know, they spent half a million dollars, got all this really smart people to do this study. And then we, you know, we came, up with all these technical solutions to, to, to all these problems. But what we started to realize is that, you know, we're not suffering from technical issues here. We're suffering from, uh, you know, societal issues. We're suffering from political issues. We're suffering from education issues. We're suffering from inequality and, and, and corruption and, and things like this, you know. And I think it's, it's really a, an oversimplification to, to think about the future only in terms of, you know, technical innovation and, mm. and we'll innovate our ways, our, our way out of, out of all of these problems. Um, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a nice thought, but I think, um, yeah, there is going to be uh, a lot more. Um, it's, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, you know? Um, and that's kind of the nature of it. It's like, it's like with the, the black spot road program, right? It's like, we only fix the road after there's been a catastrophic accident where, we'll, you know, we're constantly in this reactionary state. Um, and I think, I think again, you know, that's uh, a failure of the education system. It's a failure of like, uh, 
of, of teaching people to think for themselves and critical thinking and 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 all of these kind of fundamental uh, principles that our society was built on. You know, the Enlightenment was you, you know like the the all of this stuff was built on this, and it's kind of being lost uh, or it's been obscured and and and. You know, it's so easy to be distracted and every, you know, we live in an attention economy now and, mm. and um, people do, you know, it's like the general population aren't even aware of, 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 you know, what, what, what their value is, their intrinsic value. And, and, um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty, um, it's a pretty big and complex and disheartening uh, topic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess I have, um, you know, I count myself incredibly lucky and I'm so grateful that I have even the time and space to contemplate these issues Mm. where, you know, I, I'm in the, you know, the top 10 by, by default living in Australia, I'm in the top 10% of humans living on this planet in terms of my quality of life. And there are, you know, 6 billion other souls out there who are just as capable as I am, but don't have the opportunity to express themselves. Mm. And um, it's really interesting. I got into this uh, podcast recently called um, This Machine Kills. And it's really this uh, tech um, kind of tech criticism kind of podcast. And they talk about how, um, you know, these, these tech billionaires um, have these utopian visions for saving humanity. Um where you know Elon Musk is to is to send us send us to Mars and have a backup plan and you know have a million people on Mars in, in a self sustainable uh, habitats for in in you know a decade or two decades whatever his plan was, um, whereas interestingly Jeff Bezos um, his plan is to I've never seen the movie Elysium. No, I haven't. Oh, it's it's basically like a, a floating, uh, sorry, um, orbiting space stations around the earth and pulling the asteroids in and mining the asteroids and and basically turning earth into a wildlife sanctuary and and having you know most of humanity um off world and um and 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 jeff bezos is going to spend trillions of dollars on that dream over his lifetime no doubt or whatever billions and billions Mm. billions but and and so what one of the one of his quotes is is saying that you know, um, it's, oh God, no, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but he basically says that, you know, um, you know, all of like, um, um, if we expand the, the population of, of the human race by, by an order of magnitude, you know, so we get 90 billion or, or 70 billion of us up in the, up in the, in the, in the, in the solar system, then think of how, about how many Mozarts we could have then think about how many Rembrandts we could have. Um, you know, we would, it would be a golden age of, of, of exploration and creativity and, and blah, blah, blah. But what's, what's really going on right now is that people like Jeff Bezos, you know, with their trillions of dollars or hundreds of billions, whatever it is, um, are stealing the future from those other six, seven billion people who could have expressed themselves you know beautifully and 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 poetically and 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 and, you know not have to live in fear of their own um you know hierarchy of needs um 
if if the, you know the, the the wealth had been spread out more evenly today. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Or solves, you know, world hunger or, or solves, you know, the, like, you know, all of these problems we have today, you know, it's like, you're not even, if we're not even enabling the humans living today to solve the problems, then how on earth, um, yeah, how are we going to, how are we going to do it in the future? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely a common criticism I hear of, um, of the billionaires, you know, <clears throat> having these grandiose plans, uh, but not really focusing on what's going on now, especially given that a lot of the problems that we do have now may even have solutions. They, it, it could just be a financial uh, barrier. Right. And so it's not even like we're trying to figure out something novel a lot of the time, you know, like feeding people, I'm sure, you know, could be done. Um, it, it's just a, a lack of intention to do that. And I wonder if it's because it, I don't know, maybe it seems more, boring to them they're they're more like up in the clouds thinking of you know the next next thing um because that that's what excites them um it's interesting it, it seems almost selfless but selfish at the same time well everyone has to tell themselves the stories so they can sleep at night yeah yeah well said well i'm glad that you're at least one person who seems to be doing well for the world um I certainly get inspired talking to you and um, it's been really great having you on, man. And I I very much appreciate your time. So um, where can people find you if they want to check out some of your work? Uh, I think for now, the best spot is Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, My tag is um, at create wonder. So C R E A T E and then wonder with no e so w-o-n-d-r excellent all right well thanks so much for joining me man appreciate you yeah no worries it's fun to uh to have a chat a little chin work awesome all right i'll speak to you soon cool thanks for having us thanks mate all right that was a conversation with michael flood i hope you enjoyed and there'll be plenty more podcasts to come so stay tuned I will shortly set up an Instagram and a Twitter and all that nonsense. And I will look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.